and a handout is going out that everyone will get a copy of. Um, there's a lot of terminology in this program, so it's good to just have a place where you have it all right in front of you. Uh, there's a short text here from um, from the Nikaya's uh, analysis of, of dependent co-arising, and then there are a couple of charts. One of them is a circular chart. Um, from a certain point on, not just in the Tibetan tradition, but from a certain point on, people tended to talk about interdependence as a circle with the 12 links of interdependence going around the circle. Uh, Tanisara Bhikkhu and others who are working on this material in contemporary terms are less sanguine with that model, but it's been very influential and has been used a lot. And I brought here a, a big, large format book with a copy of the Tibetan, a typical, this is not a typical, this is a much better than usual uh, Tibetan Wheel of Life. And um, when I teach this as a weekend program, I go through that in great detail, but that's one of the things I'll skip today um, because this is not a Tibetan center and we don't have that much time. And if there's time left at the end and people want to know more about it, I can, I can explain it all to you in great detail. And it'll be up here all day so you can take a look at it during the lunch break. Um, this diagram is, uh, when you enter a Tibetan meditation hall or monastery, this, some form of this diagram, usually called the wheel of existence or the wheel of life, is on one side of the main entrance. And it's a pictorial lesson of the whole of really in a way the whole of Buddha Dharma. Uh, and on the other side, it's, I'm not so sure, but on the other side I think is usually a, a cosmology, a map of the world. And then the last page of this handout is from uh, a book called Turning the Wheel of Truth, which is a relatively new account of the Four Noble Truths by a British Theravada teacher that I like very, very much. Uh, and he gives the Pali, the English, and uh, a brief explanation of each of the 12 Nidanas in the forward-going order. Um, so as I just said, I've taught this material a lot in the last few years. I've studied it a lot. And I would have to say that really studying interdependence in depth has done a tremendous amount to um, deepen my understanding of Buddha Dharma. I can't recommend enough a thorough study of interdependence. And it is one of the teachings that is absolutely basic to all forms of Buddhism. In my knowledge, probably less stressed in the Zen tradition than in Theravada or Tibetan traditions, but very much a part of Tibetan tradition and um, should be at least very much a part of Theravada tradition. I don't think there's any teaching that is more frequent in the Pali Nikayas in the early texts that are, as far as we can tell, the closest approximation we might have to what the historical Buddha actually taught. And those of you who have studied this in any depth know that the question of what the Buddha actually taught and what was a later addition is very, very complicated. But I'm absolutely convinced that the Pali Nikayas are closer to it than the Mahayana Sutras even though I supposedly practice in a Mahayana tradition. So um, there, there goes my one of my many not quite uh, 
belonging anywhere, non-orthodoxies. Um, so these teachings on interdependence, it's hard to overemphasize how important they are and how helpful they are once you really understand them. Uh, because you can explain a lot when you thoroughly understand the teachings on interdependence. You can understand why it's useless to rail about the present configuration of things. It couldn't be different than it is because it is a result of interdependence and interdependence of causes and conditions. We might not like it, but it couldn't be different than it is because it has come together due to interdependence due to the interaction of causes and conditions, period. Now, if somebody had done something differently a long time ago, the present might be different, but they didn't do it differently a long time ago. So things are the way they are now. Where we have a chance, where we have some freedom, is how we work with the present situation. And then that, because the future is not predetermined according to Buddhism. Uh, when we deal with interdependence, we're also dealing at a very deep level with teachings of karma that people often, you know, put in a very new agey kind of way, in a very trivial way. But we're dealing with what, what karma really is about when we deal with interdependence, and it's not about predestination. Some things in the future may be impossible to alter, but the entire future is still open-ended. Uh, we still have, otherwise practicing Buddhism altogether would make no sense. If karma were predestination, pure and simple, why not just sleep? Nothing's going to change if you practice and study the Dharma because everything's predetermined, right? So it's very important to get that point. And as a result, it has helped me a lot in my understanding of politics, of um, gender issues, the current gender condition configuration. Um, it's all the way it has to be given choices that people made along the way. It could only, we say it could, doesn't have to be that way. Well, it wouldn't have been that way if people had made different decisions a while back. But the present is as it is. So I think this is what's become almost, maybe my non-Buddhist friends are saying this a lot now. It is what it is become almost a popular slogan. It is what it is. Kind of a, an acceptance that, well, some things we can't uh, change right now. Um, <clears throat> so um, when I teach this material, uh, I emphasize how basic and important it is. I also, I think one of the most important points about these teachings, I'm going to have to be going back and forth between two screens here because, as I said, I generally teach this as a weekend program. I have 19 pages of notes, and I can't find my way through 19 pages of notes in a shorter program, so I had to do a screen for what I would emphasize for a shorter program. I think that one of the most important things about this whole set of teachings is that it is more, I think, not only easier, but more correct to understand that the headline is interdependence, not 12 Nidanas. And that makes it, that puts the emphasis where it belongs. The emphasis is on interdependence. People are often very afraid of these teachings because they sound complicated and 12 and 12 is too many to memorize and 
then you get confused about the relationship between seven and eight and especially one, two, and three. Those are very subtle and very complicated. But if you put the headline on interdependence, then you've got the emphasis where it belongs and it becomes much easier to understand the whole thing. Um, Tani Sarabiku basically says, ah, hi, Jerry. Tani Sarabiku says in his transcript, please sit towards the middle so I can see you, uh, which I will introduce in a few minutes, that you don't actually have to understand the ins and outs of each of the 12 Nidanas. What you have to understand is the principle of interdependence and to know where on this, whether you call it a circle or a chart or whatever, what's actually going on in the present and how to work with what's going on in the present. But you don't have to understand the ins and outs of each of the 12 Nidanas. And I've found, as I said, teaching this quite a bit, that people really can relax when they realize the emphasis is going to be on interdependence and not on one leads to two and two leads to three and the thigh bone is connected to the, you know, knee bone is connected to the ankle bone, et cetera. That's not quite the right uh, emphasis. The other thing I want to say at the very beginning about interdependence or interdependent origination is that if you understand interdependence, teachings on emptiness are very simple and straightforward. They're in fact the same thing, which people often don't realize. They think, especially in a Theravada world where people think teachings on emptiness are purely Mahayana teachings, a thesis which I reject entirely. And uh, so does Bhikkhu Bodhi, uh, not Bhikkhu Bodhi, uh, Bodhidatsa, the great 20th century Thai Theravada commentator, completely rejects the notion. And you, we just, I was here for it too. We just had Santikaro up here about two months ago teaching about emptiness. So he's doing a lot as he translates Bhikkhu Bodhidatsa's work. He's doing a lot to, uh, in, to emphasize the thesis that teachings on emptiness are part and parcel of the Pali Nikayas, <coughs> of the Pali teachings of the historical Buddha. The word isn't used very much, but that doesn't mean the basic teaching isn't there because, as I said, the most common teaching of all in the records of what are purported to be the teachings of the historical Buddha are the teachings on interdependence, the 12 Vedanas. You go through those texts and time after time after time after time, he, he says, this is what I've taught. Dependent upon ignorance arise uh, formations or fabrications. Dependent on fabrications arises consciousness. Dependent upon consciousness arises name and form and through. This is what I teach because this gives us a key to suffering and the ending of suffering. And then um, at a certain point, that uh, one, one word that was very simple for all of that, emptiness, came to the fore. And Mahayana's really adopted the word emptiness. I mean, they've really taken that word and run with it. Um, they love to talk about emptiness and have, you know, tremendous, vast, sophisticated literature on emptiness. But just because Mahayanas have made a big deal out of it doesn't mean that we should go back and, you know, not notice what's in the in the Pali Sutta. So um, I guess that's where I don't quite fit. I wouldn't wouldn't you know. Well, I guess I'd be 
comfortable in certain contemporary Theravadan contexts because contemporary Theravadans are much more starting to read Nagarjuna and saying, you know, there's nothing particularly Mahayana in the Mula Madhyamaka in his main text. There's not one word in that text, if you're reading it without any labels on it, that would lead you to think this guy was a Mahayanist rather than a mainstream Buddhist, period. So I think I've made that point here before. Uh, I always like to do a little bit teaching the um, Sanskrit words. I, I tend to work in Sanskrit, not Pali. You'll just have to bear with me on that. Uh, you have the Pali name here on the first page of this handout, Patitya Samupada. And the Sanskrit is almost the same, Pratitya Samutpada. Um, it's a long word, Pratitya Samutpada. Um, not as hard to say once you've gotten your mouth used to it as you might think at the beginning. Um, but it has been translated in many ways. I think the best, which I will be using, is interdependence. And by the way, both the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh have said, now that they know English better, that they prefer the term interdependence to the term emptiness because of the negative English connotations of the word emptiness. But that it means exactly the same thing. <clears throat> and you might say, well, they're both Mahayanas, but uh, I think we can let that go. I don't think people are that doctrinally non-Mahayanas here anyway never seen this as a very... Oh, do we have another handout? Uh, you can have this one at the end of the program, but I kind of would like to have it with me to look on. Maybe you can sit where you can look on with someone. Other translations are codependent, co-arising. It has also been translated as codependence, but that word has kind of been co-opted by a different movement these days, so I won't be using that. Uh, condition genesis is a word I term I sometimes use. Dependent arising, interdependent arising, interdependent origination. Those are all different ways of translating the same term. Now, I like to start this teaching not with um, the 12 Nidanas at all, but with something that is much simpler and I think much more to the point. And this is a story uh, from the Pali Nikayas. It's from the Mahatvaga 123.5, if you want to go into a Pali text. And it's a story, it's a very famous story about how uh, Shariputra and Moggallana, uh, two of the Buddha's foremost disciples, became his disciples. And this is fairly early in the career of the historical Buddha. I don't know if this story is 100% historically accurate, but it's certainly um, in terms of being a story that gives us the pith of Buddhism. is a very, very good story. Um, I'm saying this in part I have an article in the current issue of Tricycle which they titled very ambitiously The Truth About Truth. But it's, it's an article saying that the, one of the crying needs for contemporary practitioners is to learn to appreciate stories, uh, to appreciate stories for their meaning, not 
taking them as literal stories, to take stories, traditional stories seriously but not literally. So to me it doesn't matter if this story is historically, you know, the camcorder would have recorded this. It's a very, very helpful story for getting at the pit of Buddhist teachings. And um, the Buddha has already given the sutra on the turning of the wheel of the law, and he has gathered a small group of disciples. And one of uh, the story is, a, is about how first Shariputra and then Moggallana meets one of these very early students of the Buddha, and um, how Shariputra was converted to become a, a disciple of the Buddha. So I'll read it to you in the you know, in the style of the Pali Nikayas, which is part of the reason why people don't like to read them, because they're very, very repetitious, which indicates that they were transmitted orally for a long period of time. Um, whereas the Mahayana Sutras are completely different. They could never have been transmitted orally. They're much too complicated, much too dense. They read like written material, not like oral transmission. Um, now at that time, the wanderer Sanjaya was residing in Rajagriha with a large company of wanderers, 250 in all. And at that time, Shariputra and Sanjaya is another teacher of the day. As you know, there were a lot of people wandering around teaching. Uh, at, at that time, Shariputra and Moggallana were practicing the holy life under Sanjaya. They had, mis meet, they had made disagreement Whoever attains the deathless first will inform the other. Deathless is the, one of the most common terms for enlightenment in the Pali text. That one has attained the deathless, which means that one will, not that one will not die, but that one will not be subject to a continuing cycle of birth and death over and over and over. Um, and it's very, very frequent in the Pali text to talk about the deathless. I think that knowing that, I think, puts a whole other layer on our understanding of the, what the third truth is about. Um, and obviously, this also indicates that Sariputra and Moggallana are not completely satisfied with the teacher they're with at present. Otherwise, they wouldn't be saying. Uh, so then Venerable Asaji, and Asaji was, I believe, if I'm correct, one of the five present for the turning of the sutra, sutra and the turning of the wheel of the law. Then Venerable Asaji, arising early in the morning, taking his robe and bowl, entered Rajgriha for alms. Gracious in the way he approached and departed, looked forward and backward, drew in and stretched out his arm, his eyes downcast, his every movement consummate. Shariputra, the wanderer, saw Venerable Asaji going for alms in Rajagriha. Gracious, his eyes downcast, his every movement consummate. And seeing him, the thought occurred to him. Surely of those in this world who are arahants or who have entered the path to arahantship, this is one. What if I were to approach him and question him? On whose account have you gone forth? And who is your teacher? In whose dharma do you delight? But then, the, this is so sweet, but then the thought occurred to Shariputra, the wanderer. This is the wrong time to question him. He is going for alms in the town. What if I were to follow behind this monk who has found the path for those who seek it? Very polite, not going to bother him on his way to get breakfast. 
for lunch and dinner and all three meals. <laughs> then Venerable Asaji, having Then Venerable Asaji, having gone for alms in Rajgriha, left, taking the alms he had received. Chariputra, the wanderer, approached him, and on arrival, having exchanged friendly greetings and engaged in polite conversation, stood to one side. One of the things that has been drummed into me working with my Tibetan teachers is an email etiquette, that you do not just start off your email with the business of the email. First, you have to exchange polite greetings. I hope you are fine. I hope everyone is well. Um, uh, you know, I hope you are prospering. I hope the weather is good. I hope that the sick nuns have recovered. And then you can say what the email is about. And it's, and it's amazing. Uh, you know, I still have a tendency to want to just get to the business of the email. But uh, it's been like, no, you don't do that. It's been reamed out for not taking the time to be polite first. Um, so after the polite conversations, then he stood to one side. As he stood there, he said, Your faculties are bright, my friend, your complexion pure and clear. On whose account have you gone forth? Who is your teacher? In whose dhamma do you delight? Now this is also an important lesson in here. We've often said people who have been in long retreat or something like that, when they come out of a retreat, you can tell by the way their by their demeanor that they've been doing something different. That there's some, there's been a, a bright or glow is often a word that just comes spontaneously to people when they see someone who's been in a retreat or an intensive practice situation for a while. Uh, the other thing I like to comment on in this phrase is that this shows us why decorum is so important. Why a certain kind of, you know, the thing that first attracted Chariputra was nothing that Asaji said. It was the way he walked, the way he wore his robes, the way he carried his bowl. That those things about demeanor, which we often think are just trivial, you know, bourgeois politenesses, actually make a lot of difference. That they are not irrelevant details. There is, my friend, the great contemplative, a son of the Shakyans, gone forth from a Shakyan family. I have gone forth on account of that blessed one. That blessed one is my teacher. It is that blessed one's dhamma that I delight. But what is your teaching? What does he proclaim? I am new, my friend, not having not long gone forth, only recently come to this doctrine and discipline. I cannot explain the doctrine in detail, but I can give you the gist in brief. Then Shariputra, the wanderer, spoke thus to the venerable Asaji. Speak a little bit or a lot, but tell me just the gist. The gist is what I want. <laughs> what use is a lot of rhetoric? Then venerable Asaji gave this Dhamma exposition to Shariputra, the wanderer. You say Shariputra, don't you? Uh, sorry, the Sanskrit's coming through. Sariputra, the wanderer. Listen, this is what he said. Whatever phenomena arise from cause, their cause and their cessation, such is the teaching of the Tathagata, the great contemplative. I'll read it once more. 
Whatever phenomena arise from cause, their cause and their cessation, such is the teaching of the Tathagata, the great contemplative. Would that do it for you? Cessation. Cessation, as in the third noble truth. Truth of cessation. Thank you for asking. This was the effect it had on Shariputra. Then to Shariputra, the wanderer, as he heard this Dharma exposition, there arose the dustless, stainless Dhamma eye. Dustless, stainless Dhamma eye is a phrase that's used a lot for really starting to get it. The Dhamma eye is the eye that actually sees the truth, whereas the eye organ only sees uh, sense objects. Whatever is subject to origination is all subject to cessation. Even if just this, even if just this is the Dharma, you have penetrated to the sorrowless state, unseen, overlooked by us, for many myriads of eons. Whatever is subject to origination is all subject to cessation. Seems way too simple to be the key to this, doesn't it? Why? Because when things are bothering us, we never remember this. Well, when things are going well for us, we have a tendency not to remember it either. I finally made it. But Shariputra got it right away. Whatever is subject to origination is all subject to cessation. Which I suppose if you think we could, you know, that could sound like bad news if you think there could be such a thing as permanent happiness or permanent bliss. But, of course, in Buddhist terms, the good news, as long as we can actually accept it. Even if just this is the Dhamma, you have penetrated to the sorrowless state, unseen, overlooked for many myriads of eons. Then Shariputra, the wanderer, went to where Moggallana, the wanderer, was staying. I do say Moggallana in Pali. It's a lot easier than Moggallayana. Moggallana, and it's also in Pali here. Moggallana the wanderer saw him coming from afar and on seeing him said, Your faculties are bright, my friend, your complexion pure and clear. Could it be that you have attained the deathless? <laughs> yes, my friend, I have attained the deathless. Do these people have some confidence in their insight? They don't wait around to perform miracles and uh, you know, do all sorts of other things before they can before they realize they have some real insights. I've been working on material. I think one of the reasons why Buddhists forgot a few centuries after the Buddha's life that Buddhism was about becoming enlightened in this life, not in some future lifetime, is because um, one of the complaints that were being, was being made about the arhats of the day was that um, they weren't enlightened, actually. How do you prove that? When they went to a new town, they had to ask directions. But if they were enlightened, they should be omniscient, so they shouldn't need new directions. And I used this last summer when I was teaching at Lotus Garden. I said, see what trouble 
belief in miracles has gotten us, in, us into in Buddhism, that we lost the conviction that enlightenment in this lifetime is possible because the arhats uh, didn't know the names of strangers and uh, needed directions in a strange town, which proved they weren't omniscient and therefore they weren't really enlightened, so we don't have to listen to them. Um, we will we will do something different. <laughs> One of the students at the, at the program immediately, I think she immediately, put, no, she grabbed me immediately afterwards. She says, does that mean that Rinpoche, our teacher, that Rinpoche needs a GPS? <laughs> and I looked at her kind of like, I said, well, of course. But, you know, how gullible Western students can become. And I think that probably, you know, for many, for many Mahayana Tibetan students, saying that the teacher needs a GPS is almost to insult the teacher. But if the teacher doesn't need a GPS, the teacher shouldn't need an airplane either, you know. The way people could fly is all over in Buddhist scriptures. Tremendous numbers of stories about people being able to fly. And so the point of that article in Tricycle is that we don't have to reject that article as an, as an out-and-out lie. We can look for the meaning of the story rather than trying to take it literally. Anyway, yes, my friend, I have attained the deathless. But how, my friend, did you attain the deathless? Just now, friend, I saw Asaji, sort of helps us understand why Thich Nhat Hanh uses the word friend so many times in his discourses. Just now, friend, I saw Venerable Asaji going for alms in Rajagriha, gracious in the way he approached and departed, looked uh, forward and behind, drew in and stretched out his arm, his eyes downcast, his every movement consummate. On seeing him, the thought occurred to me, surely as those in this world who are arahants or have entered the path to arahantship, this is one. What if I were to approach him and question him? On whose account have you gone forth? Who is your teacher? In whose dharma do you delight? Then the thought occurred to me. This is the wrong time to question him. He is going for alms in the town. What if I were to follow behind this monk who had found the path for those who seek it? Then Venerable Asaji, having gone for alms in Rajgriha, left, taking the alms he had received. I approached him and on arrival, having exchanged friendly greetings and engaged in polite conversation, sat down to one side. As I stood there, I said, your faculties are bright, my friend, your complexion pure and clear. On whose account have you gone forth? Who is your teacher? In whose dhamma do you delight? It has been suggested by others that when reading this material, we could think of all this repetition as like the, the, um, the refrain in a song. And you can imagine, you know, somebody intoning these, most people couldn't read. Books were almost unknown and very expensive. So people learned the material through oral transmission and through artwork. That's how they learned the tradition, not the way we learn it. Oh. There is, my friend, the great contemplative of the son of the Shakyans, gone forth from a Shakyan family. I have gone forth on account of that blessed one. The blessed, that blessed one is my teacher. It is that blessed one's dhamma that I delight. But what is your teacher's teaching? What does he proclaim? I am new, my friend, not long gone forth, only recently come to this doctrine and discipline. I cannot explain the doctrine to you in detail, but I can give you the gist in brief. Speak a little or speak a lot, but just tell me the gist. The gist is what I want. What use is 
a lot of rhetoric. Then Venerable Asuji gave me this Dharma exposition. Whatever phenomena arise from cause, their cause, and their cessation, such is the teaching of the Sipagats of the Great Contemplative. Then to Moldawana the Wanderer, as he heard this Dharma exposition, there arose the stainless, selfless Dharma I. Whatever is subject to origination is all subject to cessation. Even if just this is the Dharma you have penetrated to the sorrowless state, unseen, overlooked for many, overlooked for many myriads of eons. So um, that's the story. And in this, this case, you know, the Buddha taught Asaji, who taught Shariputra, who taught Moggallana. So the teaching is even four times removed from the Buddha, still very clear and direct and powerful. And I think we could say remains as clear and direct and powerful today. So um, a few other translations of that verse. Of those things that arise from a cause, which Tathagata has told the cause, and also what their cessation is, this is the doctrine of the great recluse. All dharmas, all dharmas arise from a cause. Of them all, the Tathagata has told the cause. He also told of their cessation. Such is the doctrine of the great shramana. So. Um, that's the story. Now, in the Tibetan tradition, what Asaji said to Sariputra has become a mantra. It's that basic in the Tibetan tradition. It's called the mantra of interdependence. And it is used um, in sadhana liturgies towards the end when you want to uh, bring things to a conclusion and correct all the mistakes you've made. You correct all the mistakes you've made by saying, it's always said in Sanskrit, all dharmas arise from a cause. Of them all, the Tathagata has told the cause. He also told of their cessation, such as the doctrine of the great Shramana. So whatever mistakes, omissions, duplications you've made in your practice can all be taken care of by simply recognizing that everything that arises from a cause, uh, it ceases. And uh, unfortunately, um, when I teach this in a, in a Tibetan context, which I've, a Western Tibetan context, which I've done a lot, people who use this mantra a lot have no idea where it comes from in the tradition. Nobody's, nobody's ever, you know, told them that. And uh, they find it find it, I think, illuminating. I mean, it's illuminating that it goes back so far. And it's also illuminating of how basic these teachings on interdependence are through the whole of Buddhism, that even in, you know, very, very elaborate uh, Tibetan traditions filled with recitation and visualizations and mantra, it's still there in a very prominent place. And probably more traditionally educated Tibetans would know where it comes from. It may just be Western, Westerners practicing in a Tibetan tradition who don't understand that. So I think this might be a point to pause for a little discussion and clarification or whatever. Uh, I always ask people, you know, 
could you get it, would it convince you? Would you become a disciple of the Buddha on the basis of that statement? Why or why not? something unchanging until they start to really contemplate and practice dharma. Everybody believes that. Otherwise, we wouldn't get so wrought up over things going wrong and think it's, you know, disaster forever doom, or when things go right that um, we finally, you know. I mean, how many times has there been a breakthrough, some kind of publication or something, and I thought, this is going to make a real difference in the trajectory of, you know, now things are going to work from here on in. Never, never happens. So everybody believes that it isn't just, you know. And of course, um, the, as we know, or maybe we don't know, the teachings of the Buddha are especially set against the backdrop of the teachings of the Upanishads, the Hindu, the Hindu texts that are slightly older. And the Hindu belief is that there is a non-empirical, uh, lasting, permanent selfhood that one can find in the flux of experience. And that's the Buddhist teachings on Anatman, egolessness, are direct contrast. Anatman means no Atman. Atman is what people were searching for in the teachings in the Upanishads, the great Hindu texts of the day. So, but it's, you know, everybody believes in permanence. It takes a great deal of contemplation and experience to stop believing that it's there somewhere. So, you know, Sariputra and Mogalana were incredibly sharp. I'm drawn in by the selfless English Dharma. That's really yeah. <laughs> I like that phrase. Yeah. But that's about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to understand intellectually. Right. But I forget immediately. Uh huh. That's why we have to do the go over these things. That's why, like in the Tibetan tradition, we repeat things a lot. Because, yes, it's easy to get. I mean, and sometimes I've often said to people, Buddhism is, it's not that Buddhism is difficult. It's that it's so easy we can't get it. It's so simple and so straightforward that there's a strong tendency to say, no, it couldn't be that simple. Or, no, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah, sure, it's not that hard to get intellectually. So how do we... How do we, um, you know, I think that 98% of Buddhism takes place off the cushion. Uh, constantly contemplating the teachings and then constantly reflecting between how I, wor how I worked in a certain situation in the Dharma teachings. So we have to do a lot of back and forth work there. Uh, just putting in our time on the cushion 
could do a lot that forever, and it probably wouldn't make a lot of difference if we didn't remember. The Shrinker Rinpoche used to say the only reason we sit down is to get up. Jerry? often is. It seems very simple, but then if you if you really know the Dharma, you can see that it's quite profound. By the way, speaking of Minja Rinpoche, you know that my teacher is going to be at Turgarda Center, and you're going. Good. Yeah, I'll be there too. Good. Um, Turgar Meditation Center is sponsoring a visit by my teacher, Jetson Kondra Rinpoche here in Minneapolis this summer. Um, you can go to the Turgar website and get directed to it, I think. Jerry can, Jerry can help you. P-E-R-G-E-R? It's in August. Dalai Lama, but also um, the monk, Ajahn Amaro, 
the people who are so limited in their own skin mm-hmm. are just, mm-hmm. um, and, and I see, and the dialogue for a minute, but the mom, Amara, it was like these two flower people just mm-hmm. couldn't get enough of it, and, and it was just this, This is some. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, when I teach that story, I always say that, that Siddhartha said at that point, I'll have what he's having. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so um, I want to take this, this story back even a little further. This is something I only noticed myself this year which shows you how slowly this stuff can penetrate. Um, usually I teach a sequence of the four truths as a weekend program and then this program as a weekend program. So my notes say last year when we studied the four truths in the Buddha's uh, first teaching, uh, one of the five immediately got interdependence. Uh, this is a quotation from the Sutta of the Turning of the Wheel. Uh, the, 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 the five monks were delighted and they rejoiced at the words of the Blessed One and the ex- oh, this isn't it yet this is leading into the words from the Sutta and when the exposition was propounded the venerable Kondana obtained the pure and spotless Dharma eye again your favorite phrase you saw that this is from the Sutta on the turning of the wheel whatever is an arising thing all that is a ceasing thing. So it's in the sutta on turning the wheel of the law as, uh, in a sense, more pithy than the Four Noble Truths. And the one that actually got the Four Truths at that term, and only one of the five got it right away, saw that whatever is an arising thing is a ceasing thing. So it's there from the very first sermon of the Buddha. And there's also a statement that occurs quite frequently, I don't know if it occurs quite frequently, but a statement that's become kind of a slogan. Whoever sees interdependence sees the Dharma, and whoever sees the Dharma sees interdependence. So they're like the same thing. Whoever sees the Dharma sees interdependence, and whoever sees interdependence sees the Dharma. Oral tradition and 
recognition, uh, giving us simplicity, giving us reminders, um, giving us also a unity of community, uh, and, and a reference point to take it through the day. Yeah. yeah, modern people hate memorization and repetition. And they are, um, that's very unfortunate because they're very helpful learning tools. It's a, I think, really important to memorize the basics of Dharma. Um, Dana took even me a little while to memorize. It's easy to forget. But the word interdependence is easy to remember. And then to be, you can remember this story and you can remember the phrase, whatever is subject to origination is subject to cessation. That's the essence of the teachings on the 12 Nidanas. And I think it's much, much more important to focus on that teaching than to worry about how we get from link three to link four. That's what turns people off on these teachings. I mean, proposing this as a program, even um, the other sort of more senior teachers in Lotus Garden were not that eager to do a program on the 12 Nidanas. But I think it's just because they were even a little nervous about it themselves. Um, people just, well, that's a little too complicated. I don't want to go there. But it's, the essence of it isn't that complicated. Did you have another comment? <laughs> No. Okay. Okay. Enlightenment is uh, our inherent potential. It's clouded over by our confusion. It does not have a cause. If it had a cause, it would be subject to cessation and wouldn't be worth very much. So I think one of the clearest explanations of this is in Rahula Walpola's book, What the Buddha Taught, when he's talking about the third truth. And he says, in discussion he made me as Nirvana, he says, the top of the mountain is there. The path takes you to the top of the mountain, but the top of the mountain is not there because of the path to it. It's there. So the fourth truth, that's why the fourth truth why the third truth precedes the fourth truth. The relationship between the third and the fourth truth is that the third truth is, in Tibetan language, we might say self-existing. It's not something that is the result of causes and conditions. The fourth truth makes it possible to blow away the clouds or to get up the path or whatever you want to say. This is made very explicit in Mahayana and the teachings on Buddha nature. But I think that this is all completely implicit in the Pali Nikayas. Uh, that enlightenment is not the result, it's very clear that enlightenment is not the result of, of causes and conditions. It takes effort, of course, to walk the path. But the result of effort is undoing confusion to let be what is there. That's what effort does. Effort undoes confusion. Does that make sense? That's, I mean, that's such a basic Dharma point. It's so fundamental and basic. What practice is about is to undo confusion. 
If enlightenment were something we could create, it wouldn't be any more enduring than any other thing that we can create. Yeah, if that's something that people, you know, I think that's one of the most fundamental Dharma points of all. And the reason why we can we can use the path is because confusion is subject to causes and conditions. It is created, and therefore it does cease or can cease. So the, in many ways, this is hard for Westerners because the relationship is just the reverse of what we've been taught since we were kids. Because, you know, I mean, I think this is one of the biggest differences between Buddhism and Western religions that we talk about original goodness, not original sin. And I think that makes a huge difference for people. But in a Western context, you can't do anything to save yourself. God has to do it for you. That's not Buddhism, period, 100%. That's not Buddhism. That's part of the most important part of Buddhist non-theism. Because we, we, we are the only people who can deal with our own confusion. The only exception to that might be pure land Buddhism, but that's very far from what we're talking about today. I'm not going to try to teach for pure land Buddhism right now. Good question. I think you clarified things for a lot. Jerry. Pardon? and theories are subject to dependent arising, including the four truths, which is one reason why people get so bent out of shape with Nagarjuna, because he says that so clearly. Um, and scandals. I think you have to remember that teachers are human beings. Right. I think this whole thing about teachers and scandals is one of the ways where we, I think we have way too many theistic expectations of teachers. Really, that's a very strong point with me. And just because a a person does something that we think is scandalous does does not mean that their Dharma teaching is invalid. It just means that they did a scandal. And we didn't like that. But let, let one who is without scandal cast the first stone. So, um, you know, if a teacher can't teach Dharma, then they're not a teacher. But if a teacher can teach Dharma and still does behaviors we don't like, then it's up to us to figure out what to do with that. I always tell people, if you wait for a teacher who is impeccable, perfect in every regard, you'll be dead before you find that teacher. And that's just a good excuse not to get involved in practice. Which is not to say that teachers should go around, you know, doing terrible things. It just means that we have to be not quite so theistic about teachers. Right. My comment is that you are getting the path 
Well, it's it's actually probably... It's not a place that you arrive and stay there, it's the path. The path is is an on... All teachers will tell you that they are practicing the path. They will not say they don't need the path anymore. If a teacher does say, oh, I don't need the path anymore, I've arrived, run the other way. So, you know, but the path... I guess you could say the path ends if you deliberately um, renounce everything about Buddhism, but there's still some sort of path going on. Yes? Right, I know. How, how would, I, I'm not sure. I don't know how to answer that question. I really, I'm investigating a lot the politics that were going on in that period when people stopped believing that arhats actually were enlightened and then gave up on the arhat ideal altogether and basically started to say nobody gets enlightened now. That there, were, there was just a huge change in Buddhism with, when that happened. I'm investigating a lot. Uh, I don't think any, nobody's going to self-declare themselves an arhat. Um, you know, even, I mean, Shariputra, I don't know if he was an arhat at the point when, I don't know, you know, exactly when, but usually the texts say so-and-so was given practice instructions and went off and practiced and very soon became another one of the arhats or arhats. And yes, it was, I think that people had much lower definitions of what it meant to be somewhat realized at the time of the Buddha. They didn't expect that you, you know, knew everybody's name and had a built-in GPS and could walk on the water and fly through the air. I just, when, when once those expectations came into what it means to be enlightened, I think that was devastating for Buddhism. Um, that's my, my opinion. Maybe I'll be trying to write about that one of these days. But I do think that people, you know, expected, didn't expect people to, you know, be perfect in every way and glow in the dark. And you know, they needed to have good ethics. They needed to have good understanding. Um, you know, and they needed, that, that's primarily what they needed was good ethics and good understanding. <laughs> that's not something you can, that, that, that only, that just comes. It's not something you can make happen. The way I'm thinking that the, the, the story is set because it does want to, it does suggest that you can see across the room, oh, there's somebody kind of goes, or kind of, you know, has a, an aura. Um, and, uh, well, I think there are such people. They don't have auras and they don't go I mean, how is that different from, you can you can tell by the way people act and the way they teach whether they have a fair level of understanding or whether they're just fumbling around. You know, you, there, there's, there's lots of ways to see. I think this mistake a lot of us make is that one, we think only Asians are going to do that. And two, um, our expectations are too high. But especially, you know, that we, we have a, 
Western students have so much distrust of Western teachers, maybe less in this context, but certainly in the Tibetan world. Just, you know, this sort of kind of, it's sort of like I once showed a movie, this was at the university, I showed a movie uh, of Western students going to um, Sikkim for the cremation of the 16th Karmapa, which happened in 1981. And while they were, it was a small group of Western students, and while they were there, uh, they performed the Vajrayogini Sadhana in English with, with the ritual instruments and the mudras and the whole nine yards. And one of my, I showed this movie when I was, I don't know, gone somewhere, and I we took a lot to write a little story or a little comment on it. And one of my students wrote, well, the movie was okay, except for when the Westerners tried to meditate. You could, you could tell they couldn't possibly do it. That kind of, you know, um, granted that was a university student, but um, I get so frustrated working sometimes in the Tibetan situation. If a Western teacher tells somebody something, don't take it very seriously. If a Tibetan were to say the same thing, oh, that's going to be taken very seriously. And, um, you know, Western Buddhism cannot get very far if people don't respect Western teachers. Now, that's much less of an issue in the Vipassana movement and in the Zen movement. So, yes, Patrice. I was thinking about, it, it seems to me that part of the, um, the teaching around awakening is uh, unsynchronization of green hatred and, and delusion. Right encountering individuals who seem far along the path in terms of um, when they interact that there, there seems to be um, not free but generosity, there seems to be wisdom um, and, and really not harmony. It, it seems to me that um, Rather than the, the sort of, um, you know, that, that one awakens to, to that renunciation of um, appreciation. And I think we encounter teachers who are far along that path. Yeah, I think it's important to, um, to recognize that Westerners do it too. Well, let's move on. I want to we've got about an hour left before we take take a lunch break. Can you see that it's crazy that you not recognize the teacher? You really do not expect that to Yeah. Well, one of the... Whether it matters... Whether it Right. The teaching is what's important. Yeah, one of the things that is often said, I think in all traditions, is that you should evaluate the teaching, not the teacher. Evaluate the teaching, not the teacher. Don't be fooled by charisma. That's a very important warning about teachers. Don't be fooled by charisma. But it's always evaluate the teaching, not the teacher, which also goes to the scandal part that, well, okay, I mean, one of my teachers from Rinpoche engaged in a lot of behavior that many people find very strange, including me sometimes, but uh, evaluate the teacher, 
to teach Yang, not to teach her. There's no question that without Trungpa Rinpoche, Western Buddhism wouldn't be where it is today. And I mean that in some sense, very positive. Okay, I want to uh, read another very short text um, that is often used to teach the same thing. When this is, that is. This arising, that arising. When this is not, that is not. This ceasing, that ceases. So I put that in terms of the Four Noble Truths. When desire is, suffering is. Desire arising, suffering arises. When desire is not, suffering is not. Desire ceasing, suffering ceases. And it is said that this is a universal law that is always in effect whether a Buddha has discovered it and taught it or not. And it's so simple, you'd wonder why it takes a Buddha to discover it. Uh, it doesn't matter what religion you are or whether or not you believe in it or recognize condition genesis. This, these are my words now. It will still rule your life for better or for worse. It also means in terms of the bigger picture that whatever is now cannot be different because it has arisen due to causes. But whatever is present now will fall apart when those causes wear out. So patriarchy will fall apart when the causes of patriarchy wear out. Whatever political thing we don't like will fall apart when the causes of that political thing fall apart. That's a very helpful teaching. Thus, the present is as it is, but nothing in the present is eternal or necessary. It can be changed if the proper causes are laid down. Okay, um, this is the point at which I want to introduce a source for you if you want to go more deeply into these teachings, uh, quite a bit more deeply into these teachings. There's a transcript by Tani Sarabhiku, who is one of the, I think, better contemporary Theravada teachers and translators. Um, he's a monk. He's not a, he's a more traditional Theravada. He's not a Vipassana person. It's called The Shape of Suffering, The Study of Dependent Co-Arising. And you can download it. If you Google The Shape of Suffering, you'll get to it, and you can download it. It's this big printed on a single, printed single-sided. So it's, it's a hefty thing. I rely on it a lot, uh, though, as I've gone more and more into the teachings of the Twelve Nidanas, there are, there's a lot of points at which it's, there are multiple interpretations of how things work and what they are. So let me go back to my other screen here for a second to see what I'm doing. What I want to do next and before lunch is um, go through once around the circle with the names of the Nidanas and a very simple uh, explanation of each one. 
And I might, I might rely upon this a little bit, but in this <coughs> bit complicated diagram, the 12 Nidanas are on the outer rim of that wheel, and they have visual images for each of them, which kind of give you some clue as to what's going on with that Nidana. Um, I want to also point you to um, just the second page of your handout, <clears throat> a very simplified version of the wheel uh, in terms of the three times. I think most of you <clears throat> perhaps know that these teachings are traditionally taught that it takes three lifetimes to go through the entire cycle of the 12 Nidanas. That's in uh, the path of purification and it's, uh, it's in both Theravada and Mahayana sources. It was taken for granted at a certain point in Buddhist history that it would take three lifetimes to get through the entire chain of the 12 Nidanas. I find no evidence whatsoever that that's in the Pali text. I find absolutely no evidence that that's what the historical Buddha thought. But at a certain point, along with all these other changes I'm talking about, that came. I mean, if you can't get enlightened in this lifetime, then it's easy to make, it makes more sense. But the Tolkidanas have also always been interpreted as they happen all the time. They're always going on. Uh, and they go, we go through the cycle many, maybe not the whole cycle, we go through it many times in one day. So we can understand them also as happening in the present or happening instantaneously. And I'm primarily going to be teaching it as something that happens in the present, uh, not the three lifetimes perspective. But uh, it still requires the three times, past, present, and future. So in that sense, the three past, present, future, that's very relevant. And this is a very good chart for showing you uh, where the past, present, and the future uh, are. So if we're in the present, the present we're in is a result of ignorance and the second one is very hard to translate. Karmic formations is one translation. Um, I like the translation fabrications. Santikaro is translating it as concoctions, which I've never heard before, but it's pretty good too. So in the present, wherever we are now, is a result of ignorance and um, fabrications that have already been taken care of. And then, um, as you see, we, go, we, we start at the top right. As we go around, we, then we have, from the cause, we have the present effect. And the effects in the present take us uh, up to a certain point. And then after that, we have present causes. So first we are experiencing effects in the present. And then we are laying down causes in the present. And the causes in the present lay down the effect which will be in the future. It's, it's really very straightforward, don't you think? So um, one of the comments I think is very helpful about understanding this, in English we always say cause and effect, but this is really effect and cause. We are experiencing effects now. And what we do with the effects we're experiencing now are the causes for what will happen in the future. And then 
you know, five minutes from now or five years from now, they become the effect. So the, yes, the fact that I can sit here and teach this material in the present is an effect of 40 years of studying Buddhism. Okay? It's an effect. What, I'm, what I can do right now is an effect. Uh, the fact that I continue to work on this material is a cause for deeper understanding in the future. And the fact that I'm teaching it today is a cause for people here to perhaps understand it better. The effect right now is that the program was offered and we all got together due to various circumstances. That's an effect. And then how we work with what's going on here today one way or another, there will be what we do with it. One way or another, are causes for effects that will take effect take hold in the future. Got it, Jerry? Okay. So, um, also another generalization about this material is very important is that working the 12 Nidanas forwards is the creation of samsara or the creation of suffering. Working them backwards is uh, nirvana or cessation. The 12 Nidanas are fundamentally a large commentary on the second noble truth, on the cause of suffering. But in a way, they're also a commentary on the third noble truth, on how suffering ceases. And if we start, I'll, I'll give you just a little example of doing it backwards. The twelfth link is old age and death. The eleventh link is birth. Well, if you don't want old age and death, how do you get rid of old age and death? You don't get born. How do you not get born? You don't create the causes of existence. How do you not create the causes of existence? You don't grasp or appropriate things. How do you not grasp or appropriate things? You don't give in to desire. How do you not give in to desire? You don't give in to desire by not going with your immediate feelings. That's working it backwards, which I'll do this afternoon in some depth. So you can see how working it backwards, you undo the that, that's a long commentary on that four-line verse I gave you a few minutes ago. So the first link, working them forwards, the first link is always ignorance, of course. Though there are many, it's actually the 12 Nidanas were not settled real early on. There are places in the Pali Canon where it's not quite this straightforward, but this is the version that was settled on and it's been taught in all versions of Buddhism for a very long time now. Um, ignorance uh, is pictured in the Tibetan version as an old blind person tottering around with a cane, looking as if they're going to fall down any second. I think that when we look at the Pali text, in earlier part of his teaching life, I think the Buddha stressed that grasping or clinging or desire is the cause of suffering. But then I think later in his teaching life, he took it a, a step down and said, well, ignorance is a more fundamental cause. 
The only reason we desire things is because we are ignorant of how things are. If we know that things can't be any different than they are, why desire them to be different than they are? It doesn't make any sense. So the reason we desire things is because we are ignorant. So we have to, you know, fundamentally, it's not enough to just cut desire. We have to also cut ignorance because if we don't cut ignorance, ignorance will breed desire down the road. We might have conquered our desire for ice cream, but not cookies. We'll still get fat. Uh, whatever. We're not going to solve global warming by switching from oil to natural gas vehicles. We have to, you know, start using more water power and wind energy. Things like that. See how absolutely practical these teachings are? People think they're so complicated, but they're so practical. Okay, so uh, the next, the next um, Nidana, oh dear, here we're going to have real problems with Pali and Sanskrit. No, we won't. Because the fourth page of your handout has these terms in Pali. Um, the second Nidana, Sankara, is translated in many ways. I also want to, in, one of the reasons I'm doing this slow first is because a lot of these words are used for other parts of basic Buddhist teachings as well. And Sankara is also the name of the fourth skanda. When we, when we break what seems to be the ego down into the five aggregates to the five skandhas, Sankara is the fourth of those. Um, it's translated in many ways, formation. Um, he's translated it here as comma productive mental tendencies or activities. And explained it as habitual activities of mind that are aligned to self-view. Um, this is this is one of the hardest ones to get, and I don't you know there are many ways in which I don't think I fully understand this one. But it's like um, because we're ignorant, whatever we do is out of line. My teacher last summer when she was teaching this material said it's like you have a scale uh, that is perfectly, you know, one of those scales where you move these weight things along and it's perfectly balanced. But then you do something and it goes out of balance. So sankara is the tendency to do something that is out of balance because we're ignorant. And I'll define ignorance much more fully in, uh, in a second, in a few minutes. And once we've started that, once we've done something that is out of balance or not in tune with the way things are, from there on it's a downhill story. So in the long run, we have to, to, to cut ignorance we have to stop doing mental formations that are out of balance with enlightened mind. To cut ignorance, we have to stop doing things that are out of, out of balance, that are off the mark, that uh, tend in one direction or another. Um, and that's one reason why I like very much the translation fabrication. 
because fabrication has very strong connotations that something is there, but it's not quite right on. And I also like that translation because in Tibetan Buddhism, when we do visualization rituals, visualizing ourselves as the deities, it is said directly that is a skillful fabrication. There can be skillful fabrications and unskillful fabrications. And I'll, I'll also be showing you how Tanisaro Bhikkhu says mindfulness practice is a skillful fabrication. It's a skillful way to work with body, speech, and mind. So we need skillful fabrications, which meditation is, as the way to slowly undo being out of balance, being ignorant. Yes? Off the mark. Off the mark. Yeah, which would make sin much less problematic than it is in much modern discourse. I think that's in the Hebrew Bible. I think by the time of the New Testament that had already been lost. Okay, so samskara. Um, and then the third nidana is vijnana. Uh, I can't even say it in Pali. Vijnana. How do you say it? Vijnana? The image for the samskara is a potter turning wheels on a pot, which is a very good image. These images, you know, if you think about these images, they're very, very helpful. Um, because, you know, the potter's wheel is turning and the stuff is coming, the, the fabrications are coming off the potter's wheel and it's always going on. Uh, then vijnana, 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 consciousness, usually English translation, actually it means divided knowing, divided knowing, subject-object knowing, uh, is the same term as for the fifth skanda, a monkey in a house with six windows. <laughs> So there are six consciousnesses in Buddhism, as you know, and the monkey is uh, the forming ego looking out these six windows. These images, by the way, are geared to understanding this in terms of the three life process because uh, the, the life we are in now, according to the three life perspective, begins with the, with the third nidana, which happens with conception. So you can see the, how it's constructed for that perspective. Then the fourth nidana is nama rupa, same in Sanskrit and Pali, name and form. And the image for that is um, people. And notice that that uh, oh, what's the name of this? I don't remember the author of this book, Turning the Wheel of Truth. But it's a book I very very highly recommend on the four truths. Uh, he, he also says acting in a dualistic way, that consciousness is dualistic knowing, me and that. And, um, you know, dividing the world into me and that is like the first big mistake we make in Buddhism. No, this is number three still. Number four, Nama Rupa, name and form. Um, is a little little more definite. The image for that is a people in a boat. And that very clearly 
is um, in the three lives perspective moving into a new life the boat is the crossing a river is a very common image for dying and moving into the next life and then uh, number six number four number five is shadayatana same in Sanskrit and Pali the six senses so Name and form, this will be very important later on. Name and form is where we really glom onto ourselves as me, where we develop, this is me, that's not me. And then if we have a name and form, um, the form develops the six senses, which are very straightforward. The six senses is an image of a house with six windows. The body has six senses. The body is the house. The six senses are the six windows that we look out of our house with. Um, on the basis of having senses, contact occurs. So contact is number seven. One, two, three, four, five, six is number six. I should put some numbers in this chart for myself. Um, Fasa, I guess. Is that how you pronounce it? Fasa? Sparsha in Sanskrit. Contact. And this is a very interesting, very graphic image of, in the Wheel of Life of a couple making love. This, you know, very strong coming together of self and other. And then out of contact comes feeling, Vedana. Vedana is also the same word as in the second skanda. When we do the five skandhas analysis, the five aggregates analysis, if that's the terminology you know it by. Feeling in Buddhism, as you know, does not mean emotion. It means there are only three basic feelings and I usually put them as I like it I don't like it I don't care and this is the basis out of which the three poisons develop of course um, the term for Vedana is a person with an arrow in their eye so after contact symbolize the pictured as a couple making love you have very strong feelings certainly an arrow in your eye would be a very strong feeling out of feeling comes desire tanha in Pali Krishna in Sanskrit and I like the Sanskrit word because it's an onomatopoetic Krishna. It's already just your mouth forming it. It's very desirous. It's the term for the second noble truth as well. And the um, picture of it is a drinking party or a woman giving liquor to a man.
and then the eighth, the eighth is Krishna, the ninth is Upadana. The second noble truth doesn't separate grasp, desire and grasping. The teachings on the twelve Nidanas do, and that in many ways makes them more subtle. But the ninth one, grasping, the translation I like best is appropriation. Because this is where you really appropriated it. That's mine. And once you reach this point, there's no turning back. You cannot possibly stop effects arising from the causes you have laid down. One of the images I use for this, for the progression from Vedana to Trishna to Upadana, is that if you go shopping, and you see something you like in the window, that's a feeling, that can easily give rise to desire. But you still, this is something that, that not, I haven't seen other people teach it this way, but I think this is right. You still have a, some ability at that point of, I like it, I want it, it would look good on me, or it would be great for, you know, my boyfriend or girlfriend. You still have the point of saying, but I can't afford it. Once you go into the store and get out your plastic, you've appropriated it. It's yours. You have to pay for it. And this store has a no returns policy. The image, that's a very interesting image. The image is of uh, a monkey or a person gathering fruit from a fruit-laden tree. And the, the, I think the more, the more accurate image is this person already has a basket full of fruit. They've already got plenty, and yet they're just pulling more off the tree and into their basket. What? From all of America. <laughs> well, I don't think the person who painted this ever saw the Mall of America. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think shopping malls, what we do in shopping malls is you know, a lot of Upadana. Now, if any of you have read the Pema Children material on Don't Take the Bait, that, she's talking about this particular link here. So then the tenth link, after we've made it our own, the tenth link is Bhava in both, uh, often translated as existence, but I think becoming is a better translation existence or becoming. Now what you have appropriated is uh, growing. It is taking effect. So the image is pretty straightforward, a pregnant woman. And then because things are coming into existence, eventually birth happens. So you get the credit card bill. You sent out a nasty email, short-tempered nasty email, and now you've got now you've got a big mess to clean up. That's the birth. Um, I'm sure we can think of many other very ordinary examples of birth. One was in too much of a hurry to get there. The birth is a speeding ticket or an accident. 
um, etc. So the image for that is not going to be any surprise, a woman giving birth. And in the Tibetan text, the Tibetan visual materials is often very graphic uh, portrayal of birth, not very pleasant. And then after birth, what else is left? Old age and death. So after birth, like, um, you, you know, old age and death, whatever it was that you gave birth to wears out. Eventually you pay off the credit card bill or you declare bankruptcy, one or the other. You pay the traffic fine and wear off the points on your license. Um, so the image for that is no surprise either. It's carrying a corpse to the cremation ground. So that is, uh, in a nutshell, the 12 Nidanas, what they are, the images for them, how they relate to other terms in uh, early Buddhist thinking. And um, in this diagram, the next circle in are the six realms. And uh, the circle next in is beings ascending and descending um, uh, within samsara. And then the innermost circle, the hub of the wheel of life, is always the three poisons. The three poisons, passionate, passion, aggression, and ignorance. So the hub of it, the nub of it, what this all stems from is the three poisons. Passion, aggression, and ignorance. Um, and the rest of it I'm not going to... I'm not going to talk about it at this point in time. Because the, the, the wheel itself there is, the, is what reproduced most often. This is one of the most complicated versions of the Wheel of Life I've ever seen. <laughs> now, so what do we do with this? What we have to do is cut somewhere to keep the forward motion from going forward forever. And it's often said um, that the place to cut is between feeling and craving. Don't, don't go into craving. But as I've just shown you, I think you can also cut between craving and appropriation. It's probably harder. Maybe it might be easier. I think it's fairly easy to want something and not grab it. Or at least it takes a certain amount of discipline. Now, Tony Sorrow says in his book, in manuscript, and I think this is also very helpful, that what one is doing is applying to the four truths, applying the four truths to the link one is working. And that could be done regarding any of the links. If you're having... Uh, if you're having sense impressions, you can work with the four truths, whatever you're doing. What? No, between, uh, between feeling and craving. Feeling comes before craving. So you have a feeling, but you don't let the craving arise. 
I am suggesting the craving arises, but you can cut before you buy it. And I mentioned that the other day. Santi Caro and I have lunch together every now and then, and I mentioned that to him the other day. It was a, like a new idea to him, but it makes all the sense in the world to me. So um, that's one place. Now, last summer, when Kanda Rinpoche was teaching this material, she said something I've not seen in any of the other sources I've read on this material, that it's very important to work with name and form. And not, because name and form is the aggregate, not to, to be very careful about not projecting ego or I onto the aggregate or not taking things personally, not personalizing things. She says, the problem is that we always personalize things. It's my this, my feeling, my opinion. And that once we've, and that the traditional teachings do say this is the point at which we um, basically create ego or personality or sense of self, that I'm, I'm the center of my world. So the traditional teachings would indicate that uh, one can, can cut by not, by being very careful not believing the story we tell ourselves that I exist as a permanent important entity. The most of the, the oldest story in the world, I exist as a permanent important entity, and the operative word here is really entity. Uh, and I think the reason why this isn't, uh, I haven't run into this in other sources, is because so many of the times these teachings are presented at, at a level of not real advanced level. What I'm going to do this afternoon when we work backwards more is suggest that from from Nidana, um, from feeling on, or especially from Trishna on, we're dealing with want. That, you know, the second noble truth really says our problem is our constant tendency to say, I want. So if that's what gets us into trouble, we have to figure out what to do with this constant statement, I want. And usually it's, I want something I don't have, or I want things to be different. Uh, in the Tibetan tradition, anyway, and I think in other places, too, the I and the want are broken apart. Want really deals with, the, with, with passion and aggression. And I deals with ignorance. So the three poisons, I is dealing with ignorance, and want is passion or aggression. And it's always said that passion and aggression are much easier to tame than ignorance. Which I think absolutely makes sense. Passion and aggression are called the, uh, the, the emotional veils the emotional obscurations. Which is what they are. They're emotions. They're very strong emotions. 
And they're called veils because they cloud over our, our true nature. Yeah. yeah. So ignorance is very difficult to work with because even knowing we're ignorant is, you know, it's almost an oxymoron. So, so a lot of the teachings, because the want part of it is so much easier to deconstruct, a lot of the teachings are about cutting between feeling and craving or between craving and appropriation. Because that's, at least all of us can do something there. And that's a lot of where ethics and morality is and we're laying down good karma for future lives and all of that comes into play at those lengths. But that doesn't solve the problem because as I said, you know, you can, you can deal with one desire but another one crops up. So to really deal with the issue, you have to deal with ignorance. You have to deal with the I part of it. And we can start working backwards. We can start deconstructing I, working on the fourth nidana of name and form. But I think that fundamentally where we deal with ignorance is that the second nidana, through meditative discipline, through skillful uh, fabrications, rather than automatic, uh, habitual fabrications. The automatic, habitual fabrications are laid down by karmic tendencies that we have done for who knows how long, many lives, if you believe in many lives, at least for this life, if you don't. We've laid down a lot of karmic tendencies. And what meditation does is slowly, slowly reverse those karmic tendencies that we've laid down. So we have, to, we have to work with skillful fabrication. So all meditation is at the beginning a fabrication that undoes a different fabrication. So in certain sense, it doesn't matter whether we're doing breath meditation or visualization. It all has the same purpose of being a skillful fabrication that undoes automatic, unhelpful, dangerous, habitual patterns. So um, that's deconstructing the I part of it. And I will tell you people that this is the first time I've taught this material this way. Before, I've just always taught it going forward. So I think, you know, working on this material a lot for the last two years, if you keep on working on materials, new insights keep, keep arising. Okay, a couple more things I want to say about the process altogether. When we look at the 12 Nidanas, each link is simultaneously an effect and a cause. And no event in our lives or in our world has a single cause. Causality is complex and web-like rather than linear. And that's the big problem with this diagram. It's too linear. But, you know, you've got to do something. There's a lot of interesting teachings in that diagram. Um, there's a couple of, um, of stories in the Pali Suttas, one of which Ananda says to the Buddha, 
that these teachings on interdependence are so clear and so simple and so wonderful. And the Buddha reprimands them. He says, "Don't say they're simple. They're uh, they're they're like a tangled skein of yarn, which is in many ways, I think, a much better uh, image. But how can you make a how could you ever make any kind of a diagram that we could use as a teaching device out of a tangled skein of yarn?" And the other thing that I really think is important is to always keep the focus on process, not on subject and object. That's our mistake, that we always take what is a process, therefore always shifting, always changing, and separate out an I experiencing that which, of course, is always, if you think about it at all, always very inadequate because there's a lot more going on than I experience that. In this room, I can't look at everybody at the same time. So to be I looking at anybody in this room is not accurate. There's a much bigger process going on. Um... I think that in many ways we can get basic Buddhist teachings by remembering that the big mistake we habitually make is to mistake process for entity. And I've probably said that here before. We mistake process for entity. And that's why we think we exist as permanent, independent, separate selves because we mistake process for identity. How would we do that? Um, this is also from the Pali Suttas. Um, Buddha teaching a student named Bahia, B-A-H-I-Y-A, as a man with very little dust in his eyes. Uh, he offered an extremely brief quintessential instruction, a Dharma revelation that might have been shared in minutes. Here is the essence of what the Buddha told Bahia, an accomplished contemplative who was right for awakening. This is the advice. This is what I'm talking about, not personalizing at the level of the fourth nidana, not taking, not taking a process, mistaking process for entity. In the scene, there is only the scene. In the herd, only the herd. In the self, there is only the self. In the cognized, there is only the cognized. That's the end of the quotation from the Buddha. 
There is no subjective entity here, no self that is looking out. Attend closely and see things as they are, unadorned, unelaborate, unelaborated, and unembellished by conceptual imputation, projections, likes, or dislikes of any kind. Let the scene manifest nakedly as the scene, the herd as the herd, the self as the self, the cognized as the cognized. Perceive things as they are, and you will see that indeed there is no thing there. There is no subject self that is independent from all these appearances. The Buddha gave him a meditative practice very similar to what we're learning here, which is mindfulness of breathing. This Bahia is how you are, should train yourself. Then he described Bahia's actual realization of this. This is from the Sutta again. Since Bahia, there is for you in the scene only the scene, in the herd only the herd, in the sense only the sense, in the cognized only the cognized, and you see that there is no thing here, you will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. This is very pithy. And you see that there is no thing here, you will therefore see that indeed there is no thing there. In other words, no subject-object duality. That there is actually just perception. The labels perceived and perceiver are afterthoughts. So these non-dualistic teachings, which are often thought to be the essence of Dzogchen, are right here at the beginning in the old, old text. And then um, there's some more commentary. This book, by the way, is by Alan Wallace, called Minding Closely. The Four Applications of Mindfulness. It's, I don't know yet how much I like it. I haven't finished it. But this is also from the Buddha continuing. As you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this, nor in the world of that, nor in any place between the two. This alone is the end of suffering. I'll read that again. As you see that there is no thing there, you will see that you are therefore located neither in the world of this, nor in the world of that, nor any place between the two. This alone is the end of suffering. Okay, um, I want to uh, stop the presentation at this point and 
to have a little more discussion and question and answer. Fifteen minutes until lunchtime. I wanted to let the people who are using the dining room clear out before we go in there. Besides, I said a lot since we had our last discussion period. Is this not wonderful teaching? Not what I'm doing, a teaching. <laughs> say that it is, you know, because it's a very seemingly all-inclusive word. Um, aspiration is a word for positive, but aspiration is not grabby and needy. It's visionary. I think that's the key difference. If it's grabby and needy, even if it's the desire to be a better person with a lot of self-loathing in there, that's a problem. Uh, desire for enlightenment that is too fixated doesn't work. So um, to distinguish between aspirations, um, there's another word that people have used. Um, what? What? I heard spirit people have that spiritual urgency. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, the word urgency pushes, you know, that has a pushback for me because it sounds too needy. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, discipline, you know, we also are told we should practice as if our hair is on fire and, you know, to take very seriously this precious human birth and all of those things. Um, but the, you know, in, in in the first instance, desires are usually talked about as more desires of the five senses. But uh, one can certainly have a lot of desire and attachment regarding products of the mind as well, and that's one of the things we'll talk about this afternoon. This idea about stopping at the This is really useful. Yeah. It was new to me last summer, and it was very helpful. Uh, I, the, the teaching that I was giving about this was in Burma with a, uh, a teacher named Anani Mowat, who used to say, the Buddha would say, you know, the view of Versailles is beautiful. And he stopped there. And you, what is it? You crave beautiful scenery. You think you have to have beautiful scenery. And, and that, that was the difference. The Buddha could just see beautiful scenery. And not have that sort of craving for more and more beautiful scenery. But it's also sort of interesting to think about craving that or craving that sort of. Well, I think it was just a sort of visual pleasure, but it was one of the 
Yeah, it, you know, you have the visual pleasure. I don't see any problem with that. It's preferring visual pleasure to visual displeasure that's the problem. Yeah, there's a sense in which each of us prefers a nice, you know, with the reason why we don't have heaps of garbage outside the window of the meditation hall. But if for some reason they had to be there. Yes. What? The, uh, the oh, whatever, whatever arises ceases. Well, that's why, you know, even having a desire is not a problem and there can be a lot of teaching in it. It's giving into it that's the problem. Yes? why there are uh, stages on the path and um, that it, you know you usually wouldn't tell a, a shopaholic who is also a beginning meditator to practice at the Mall of America that would be for later on you know and that's the place where Tibetan Buddhism is really 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 good they've got such a clear sense of stages of the path and um, What's, what works at the beginning for a beginner that would not be, <laughs> you know, things that would not be a very good idea. And then that later on you should be able to put yourself into more challenging situations and be okay. And that's one of the dimensions of skillful means, that a skillful teacher knows what is relevant for X student and doesn't give everybody the same teachings. Jerry. Uh, I'm trying to think of a, a simple example to flesh out process and, and I think movies. Sorry? Movies and a single frame in the movie. The entity. If we pull out a single frame, we've made made it into an entity.
perception, which is the process, that becomes uh, so backgrounded that you become unaware of it, and all of the focus is on I. It's I that, and it's like see gets dropped out. The actual perception of seeing gets so backgrounded that we become, become unaware of it, and all the focus is on I, slower arrangement. And that's duality. So it's, it's not like anything radically changes in non-duality. It's not like suddenly you merge into the wall and, of the room and you and the wall are one. That's monism. That's not what we're talking about. But the, the subtle shift of focus, such that I find it easier with hearing than with seeing, that you can no longer tell where, the, where, the, where it is. Is it coming from there? Is it in here? You just can't tell. And that was, that when that happened, that was like, a, it, was, it was so subtle because we always look for big, huge, dramatic changes, but they're little subtle shifts that make all the difference. That's why so many teachers tell us we're not really very far off. And the more we look for really big, dramatic changes, the farther off course we get. Don't, just not taking my name in vain. <laughs> that big a plan 
and I was meditating, um, looking out of the door at a door frame that was still painted white and thinking, I've got to strip that door frame. <laughs> but then, um, what's her name? I've been blocking her name at the, at the moment. She has a, a center, her center. She said that her center started, it formed in her mind many, many years ago, probably in the mid-70s when she was doing prostrations in Nepal. So she said the center is the result of discursive thought. <laughs> so, um, you know, we can work, we can work with what thoughts are inevitable. It's belief in them that's not. Okay, let's, why don't we take just a minute or two to sit in silence and then lunchtime. I like to give people a longer lunch break so that you can go for a walk or really relax. So I'd like an hour for lunch, which means 1.30. And we will all practice, we'll meditate for a while after lunch as well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.